0: Welcome to UAB MedCast, a continuing education podcast for medical professionals, providing knowledge that is moving medicine forward. Here's Melanie Cole. Welcome to UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole. We have a panel today with Dr. Amy Kajacob. She's the clinical director of pediatric allergy and immunology, and Dr. James Calloway. He's a gastroenterologist and an assistant professor, and they're both at UAB Medicine. They're here to highlight. Common Causes, and Updated Treatment Options for Eosinophilic Esophagitis. Doctors, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Kajacob, I'd like to start with you. Can you explain a little bit about EOE, the scope of the problem we're discussing here today? We had done a previous podcast on this. Tell us a little bit about what we're seeing in the trends, why we're updating this.
1: So the scope of EOE is getting more and more broad with time. So from studies, we know that both the prevalence and the incidence of eosinophilic esophagitis is increasing. And we're seeing this pattern in all of our other allergic diagnoses, right? So, so that's why food allergy and everything else is so much more prevalent than it was in the past. And so both on the pediatric side and the adult side, eosinophilic esophagitis, we're not only recognizing it more But it's truly increasing. So I think on the pediatric side, it's about prevalence rates vary based on the study you're looking at. But in general, we think it's about 2 to, say, 6% of the population. They do think it is more prevalent than even things like inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. And then if you have some specific symptoms like dysphagia or difficulty swallowing, then the chance of you finding Eosinophils on your esophageal biopsies. When you when you go to look and look under the microscope and start counting eosinophils, then your incidence of diagnosing EOE will increase with something specific like dysphagia.
0: Doctor, could Jacob stick in with you for a second? As allergists and gastroenterologists are seeing more patients with EOE, and you mentioned it's both on the increase and there is increased recognition. Do you have any theories to what do you attribute this rise?
1: Well, a couple things. Again, taking a big picture, a step back at our different atopic diseases. Again, that's atopic dermatitis or eczema. That's allergic rhinitis. It's asthma. It's eosinophilic esophagitis, right? And it's food allergy or anaphylaxis. So in general, we talk about things like the hygiene hypothesis. So we're leading much cleaner lives than we did You know, in the past when not many of us now are growing up on the farm, running around eating dirt, and because we're leading cleaner lives, then it's kind of shifting our immune system's tendency away from kind of a Th1 kind of pathway to a Th2 or allergic pathway. So we're shifting from anti-inflammatory towards allergy. And so we think at least in part, that is the reason for the increase in all of our kind of allergic diagnoses. There's other theories out there, certainly. And a part of it is our diet and what we're eating, whether we delay introduction of food allergens or whether we're changing bathing practices, all of this is intricately intertwined. And it's hard to have, say, food allergy without eczema. And eczema tends to be one of the primary things that can set off this whole cascade. And most eosinophilic esophagitis we patients that we have are allergic or have some other allergic diagnosis. So they tend to run hand in hand. And I think that I'm sure Dr. Calloway is seeing this on the adult side as well.
2: Absolutely. I think the increase in just awareness of it is one of the big things. So this probably existed before the early 90s when this was first described, but we have a much higher suspicion for this. And so we are finding it much more frequently now.
0: Dr. Calloway, then tell us a little bit about, since we are finding it more frequently, tell us a little bit about how the therapies have evolved over the years. What do you know now that you didn't know, say, 10 years ago? And speak about some of those standard therapies that you're still using.
2: Sure. Well, the therapy for eosinophilic esophagitis, typically revolves around a few different things. Elimination diets, where we're actually trying to remove the allergen exposure by reducing that or eliminating that from the diet, has been around and works. And in most patients, the difficult part with that is finding that particular food and identifying that properly. But elimination diets are things that work for a number of patients if we can figure out the definite offending agent. Other therapies that we talked about on our previous podcast Where the use of proton pump inhibitors are also called PPIs, and the use of swallowed kind of topical type steroids trying to either decrease the inflammatory pathway or cascade or decrease overall inflammation. I did speak to, I think I spoke to dilation therapy as well, which doesn't actually treat any inflammation but can help treat some of the strictures or narrowings in the esophagus that can develop over years of untreated inflammation, which again speaks to us trying to find this earlier and treating it earlier with a hopeful attempt at reducing some of the kind of more late-stage complications, which include a very small esophagus or these narrowings where food can actually get stuck on. But honestly, the most important evolution, it's actually just in the last year, which is the introduction of a monoclonal antibody called dupilumab, which is a new drug that is FDA approved for the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis and works on those kind of cytokine pathways and inflammatory pathways that Dr. Jacob spoke of earlier.
1: Yeah, and the monoclonal that Dr. Calloway is referencing, dupilumab, has been around for many years in in the allergy realm for other diagnoses. And it's approved for other indications like atopic dermatitis down to six months of age right now. So And we've known for a long time that kind of blocking that TH2 pathway and that IL-4, IL-5, IL-13, these are big TH2 cytokines that we talk about that can lead a patient towards kind of allergic diseases. And dupilumab blocks the, what it ends up blocking is the IL-4 receptor ALSA subunit so that it ends up blocking both IL-13 and IL-4 because both of those cytokines end up attaching to this IL-4 receptor. So when you knock out IL-4 and IL-13, those are two of our big Th2 cytokines. And so blocking that entire allergic pathway really tends to help patients both numbers-wise when you go in and do their scopes and the biopsies and counting eosinophils and per high-powered field, it helps objectively, but it also helps subjectively in the symptoms. Now, symptoms are different at different ages, but in adults, that can be dysphagia, that sensation foods are getting stuck, near food impactions or true food impactions, and potentially chest pain. And so it really can help alleviate a spectrum of symptoms.
0: Dr. could Jacob, as pediatric patients transition into adulthood and go through their teen years, how does therapy and treatment change As they become adults, does this stay with them? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, it is a chronic disease, just like other number of chronic diseases. And so this does stick with the patient and the symptoms and what they feel change over time. But the underlying presence of the disease does not. So in some form or fashion, I do try to counsel patients that this will require treatment in some form or fashion, like Dr. Callaway mentioned, whether that's diet elimination or whether that is topical steroid therapy that's coding the esophagus. And the treatment choice will likely change as research advances. and. It's a lot easier, say, as a young child for a parent to strictly avoid something in their diet, right? Parents can have great control of what their toddler's getting fed at daycare, for example. But in teenage years, going into college age years and as an adult, diet elimination is very difficult because you know what good food tastes like. So adherence to diet elimination as you progress from teenage into adult years is incredibly, incredibly difficult despite best efforts. And one treatment option that Dr. Calloway mentioned or esophageal dilation, if if he does find a stricture in the EGD, that tends to be more of kind of an adult treatment rather than a pediatric treatment. So as you transition first as a child and as a teenager, it's more of an inflammatory phenotype is what we're seeing. But then as inflammation is longer standing and settles into the esophagus, you tend to transition to more of a fibrostenotic picture in the esophagus. So dilation is something not often done in kids or even into the early teenage years because they're, you haven't really had enough time typically for that stenosis to set in fibrosis. So it truly is more on the pediatric side. Something we do as a last resort is dilate. But it's a much more useful tool in adults where, again, that fibrosis or stenosis is longer standing. And Dr. Callaway can dilate. There's some rest to dilation, but it's quite rare to have complications of a dilation. And he can certainly speak better to that than I can. But it's something done much more on the adult side and can be a quick way to alleviate that that feeling of food getting stuck. But again, it doesn't address the underlying inflammation. It's a quick fix to the problem and a band aid on the issue, but it doesn't fix the underlying kind of inflammation that has been chronic and longstanding.
2: That's exactly right. It really is a combination approach. Again, if we can find motivated patients that are willing to undergo elimination diets and find the food and stick with it, then that works great. But at least my experience, especially here in Alabama, is that's not always possible. And so we do end up using the anti-inflammatory therapies that we've described so far for this disease and these symptoms.
0: Dr. Calloway, as you're telling us how treatment has evolved over the years, you represent two specialties. Tell us about your combined clinic. Why is it relevant What are you seeing are the largest benefits for these patients?
2: Sure. So I guess as a gastroenterologist primarily, I guess difficulty swallowing is what comes to my clinic by far the most. These patients may have symptoms of regurgitation, chest pain, as Dr. Kachekov mentioned, sometimes food avoidances, food impaction, which is the most dreaded of the, I guess, complications that patients had, where food physically gets stuck in the esophagus and may require endoscopic removal. All of those things are big quality of life issues. We eat at least three times per day. We swallow 600 plus times per day. And so swallowing is is something that we're all very used to doing. And so when that's dysfunctional, or when patients are having... problems with that, it's a big quality of life issue. And so it it typically will lead to those symptoms of esophageal dysfunction that I described. It requires them to come to either our clinic or the allergy clinics or the ENT clinics, actually, with complaints of food sticking in their throat. And so, of all of us are used to, at least now that we're more easily recognized this particular entity, we are looking for this earlier on and trying to treat it early on to try to prevent these kind of late-stage complications and honestly really improve our patient's quality of life. Because if you can swallow and all of a sudden can't swallow, that is definitely a problem. One thing that's interesting most is the patient's ability to adapt, which is, I guess, one comment I want to make that speaks to the importance of the comments that Dr. Kajakeb made about the chronicity of this disease, it really doesn't go away. And oftentimes patients start feeling better and they start swallowing better. So they feel like they don't need their medicines anymore and they may be lost to follow up. And so it's really important for physicians and practitioners to keep track of these patients because we really don't want to lose control of the, hopefully the improved inflammation that we get with therapy, because if left untreated, they really can really start to have some of these endoscopic problems that require us to do dilations and disimpactions of the esophagus. And that's really what we're trying to avoid here because that's just not very fun.
1: And one of the other things where I feel like we will work together to take care of these patients is, as Dr. Callaway mentioned, you know, a food trigger is oftentimes in many patients, it's 90 plus percent of patients, food elimination, if you truly stick to it, can work. But that's not always the case. Some patients can eliminate all the food in the world and all the food groups, and they're still having trouble. So on my side of things, I help to not only try to, by history, identify what food trigger may be a problem, but I also have other tools at my disposal that Dr. Calloway doesn't have. So so skin testing and trying to take a look at the bigger picture as well. So a number of patients with EOE can be triggered by environmental allergens. I mean, we don't really think about it as such, but we're breathing in these pollens and dander all day long. We're swallowing part of that. And so environmental allergies truly can be a trigger for EOE symptoms. And we do find that, say, new EOE diagnoses, the majority of them are made in the spring and fall when in the peak of the pollen season. So there's variability to this too. So from my standpoint, it's helping to control the environmental allergy burden and maybe identifying or helping to treat other allergic comorbid conditions like asthma, right? A lot of these patients can have a chronic cough, which as you can imagine, if you've got EOE and or reflux that you can have material refluxed up to the throat and patients can keep a chronic cough because of just refluxed food material. But maybe that chronic cough is actually asthma, right? Which a number of these patients have asthma and have attributed their cough for years to to reflux and EOE symptoms, but maybe they truly have asthma. So we'll screen for asthma and help to treat that. And and otherwise, just making sure that they're not having other more severe food reactions that can arise and maybe even require, say, an epinephrine
2: injector. Yeah, I totally agree. I think every single EOE patient that I see at a minimum, deserves at least an allergy referral to screen for these other atopic type things because it's at least 80 plus percent of patients have something else that maybe was either not really recognized or have a history of and just not well managed. So it's a good team approach.
1: You know, the one thing I really wish is that our skin testing did tie in better to diet elimination. We all wish it was as simple as you come to me, I test you to a panel of foods and aha, this is positive and that's your trigger for EOE. But unfortunately, it just does not work like that. And usually kind of the clinical history and the story that the patient tells me about different food groups that tend to flare their symptoms, that that's more telling than any skin testing or blood allergy testing I have. I mean, it's just not otherwise indicated food testing, unless they're having, again, that immediate severe food reaction that needs an EpiPen, then our skin testing and blood testing is really just of little utility, unfortunately.
0: Thank you both so much. Such an informative episode this was. Thank you for sharing your expertise on EOE for other providers. And for more information, you can visit our website at uabmedicine.org physician. That concludes this episode of UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole.